In this week's episode, I chat with Benoit Kim about depression, post-traumatic growth, career changes, psychedelics, and so much more. The Mental Health and Wealth Show, The Mental Health and Wealth Show, The Mental Health and Wealth Show. Welcome to the Mental Health and Wealth Show podcast. This is your host, Melanie Lockhart. My journey with money and mental health started in 2012 when I was depressed and anxious about my student loan debt. In 2013, I started my blog, Dear Debt, which chronicled my debt payoff journey and changed my life. I later published my book of the same name about how I paid off $81,000 in student loan debt. It was my time blogging that showed me that I wasn't alone in my mental health struggles around money and that my own mental health impacted how I related to money. My mission now is to help others feel less alone and tackle these difficult topics. As a disclaimer, I am not a mental health professional or a financial professional, and all content on the show should not be considered professional medical or financial advice. As a trigger warning, please note that content on the show may include sensitive topics around mental health and suicide. If you are in distress, please get in touch with a professional by texting HOME to 741-741. Thank you so much for being here, and if you'd like to support the podcast, please subscribe and review on your favorite podcast platform, and feel free to share episodes on social media and tag me at Melanie Lockert. I would love to hear from you. This is Melanie Lockhart, host of the Mental Health and Wealth Show. Today, I'm interviewing Benoit Kim, a U.S. Army veteran, Penn-educated former policymaker turned therapist, and host of the Discover More podcast. Benoit worked in the policy sector for a few years, then pivoted recently into the clinical field as an aspirational psychedelic-assisted psychotherapist. Lastly, he started the podcast three years ago by simply leaning into curiosity, and the show was featured on Top Apple Podcast 200 chart two times in 2022. I'm so excited to chat with you. Um, Lani, thank you for having me and on the show. <laughs> of course. Yeah. Super excited to chat with you and everything that you have done. You've had quite a career and such an interesting story about how you got into mental health. You know, you are an army veteran. I first want to say thank you for your service. And I also want to talk about how that experience led to your first instance of major depression. Can you share what that experience was like for you? Absolutely. I think I represent uh, many uh, fellow Asian Americans or a lot of people of color. I was raised by a tiger mom. What that means is very authoritative, very achievement focused. Didn't really believe in what mental health is. And I thought perseverance will always prevail. Just grit, work, 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 put my heads down. And just through sure willpower and routine, I could overcome everything until I didn't. And I've always had this three, five, seven year meticulous plan. It's just how I am. I'm very cognitive and detail oriented. But then my army was caught up in this deployment situations with North Korea in 2017. I don't know if you remember the high tension between Mr. Trump and Kim Jong-un. Ooh, and my, yes. <laughs> yeah, very. So my unit was one of the 12 that were summoned to support the troops in the North and South Korean border. Thankfully, the deployment was canceled the day before we were supposed to get mobilized. What that means is we're supposed to just get on the airplane and just go. At the same time, I think the anticipation, anticipating this potential death because it was a very high risk situation, I had to first reconcile and recognize my own limitations as a moral being. And I had to contemplate my mortality that I may die despite how much planning, how much skills or whatever I've had. 
And that's how I started with my major depressions. It was this ever-consuming darkness. I never had this moment. I always scoffed at people saying that, oh, depression, just shrug it off, sleep it off, work through it. And that's the mindset I've carried until this very moment where, oh, I see where they were coming from. And I had to reconcile with that, accept my own limitations. And I sought therapy for the very first time. And that's when my healing and the catalyst for my passion and deep purpose in mental health began until now. Thank you so much for sharing that. Yeah, I think such an experience like that where you are called to do something where your mortality is in your face. And yes, I do remember the hellish times we had with a former president and all the tension that that caused. And I can imagine how stressful that was and how that can be a mental trigger for such an episode like depression. And, you know, you mentioned that you had a tiger mom that you know, this is an experience that a lot of people of color have where you kind of brush off mental health and think that, you know, that's something that you can't talk about, that you can't deal with. I'm curious because I'm a white person. I'm I'm a white female. (laughs) Um, What do you think, and obviously you can only speak for yourself and I understand that, but what do you think people of color, or at least from your experience, what are the, the downsides of not feeling like you can talk about this? Or what are some of the cultural messages you got that hindered you from getting the appropriate care or, or feel like you can express those emotions? Yeah, great question. I love how you're tying the macro into the micro. So I'll speak for Asian Americans only. That's, that's the relevant experience I have. I think a lot of us have this mindset of being overly considerate. We never want to vent. We never want to rent. We never want to externalize the burden onto the others. That's how we were raised, right? Put your heads down, do hard work, and you'll be successful, whatever that means. But then where does that burden go if you don't externalize it? It gets internalized. And it's like metaphorically, it's like if a cup of water is full and every time you just put a cap on it, the water is still there. And obviously that's a metaphor for emotions. And I just had this bottle up implosive explosion moment where... I hit my cap, the water started spilling over and it impacted negatively in all my aspects of my life, my workout routine. I stopped working out for the first time and stopped eating, didn't want to get out of bed, which is a symptom for major depressions. Um, But yeah, culturally speaking, I think you, I think all of us have to recognize that the macro is compressed in the micro. And I'm just my story, but imagine millions of us are all bodily up, internalizing all the pain and emotions. And imagine that detriment that we have in our entire communities. And because we're bottling up, no one's speaking about it. So the stigma and this internalizations of trauma, feelings, emotions, burden, just get, I think, compound over time. Create this cultural message that don't seek help because what's the point? Yeah. And I think, you know, there's been so much trauma historically with many different cultures and, and different communities and that, you know, we've internalize this message that if we just work hard, that things will work out, that we'll get better. And, you know, kind of you had this idea of like putting your head down, not speaking up. And I think, you know, our generation is kind of the first generation that's really looking critically and saying, this is not serving us and this is not working out. And we need to talk about this and, and break the stigmas. And I've seen some tweets about, you know, oh, did previous generations have mental health issues? I didn't think they existed, but then it's like people are like, um, yeah, they did. Why are there <laughs> such high rates of alcoholism? Why are there such high rates of suicide, drug abuse, you know, physical abuse, domestic violence, you know, so many different things. It's like 
maybe it didn't come out in the way that we are experiencing now because we're more quote open about it, but it was coming out in other ways. And it's like, if you don't deal with your emotions and your mental health, it will come out in some kind of way. And I think our generation has the beauty of, you know, more autonomy, more flexibility, but also like carrying some of that baggage of what the previous generations had to deal with to get us where we are today, right? And I think there's so much that we've inherited that we are also dealing with as well. Right. And I do want to provide a caveat that I do agree with you, Melanie, that I think at large, the stigma has resided a little bit for our generations. I'm 30. At the same time, I just read the most recent article from about a week ago that still about 50% of Americans believe that seeking therapy is a sign of weakness. So there's a lot more work to be done, but I am feeling a little bit more hopeful week by week, month by month. Yes. Well, I'm feeling hopeful too, because we are here talking about mental health and money and breaking the stigma. And that is part of my life's work. And I'm so on the other side of the spectrum where I'll talk to anybody about therapy and mental health and OCD, depression, anxiety. I'm like, let's talk about it. Whereas, you know, I've recently come into contact with people where they're still overcoming that idea that seeking therapy is stigmatized and talking about mental health is icky or shouldn't be done. And I forget almost that people are still like that because I'm so on the other side of the spectrum. But I remember that we still live in a culture that for a lot of people, seeking help means you're weak, means you're not strong, you know, means you're quote crazy. And I think, you know, we have to break down those barriers with these conversations. And I so appreciate you sharing your experience as a man as well, because I think, you know, we have an episode with Colin Becker on toxic masculinity. It's really important that men are able to talk about their feelings. And we've talked about this on the podcast before that toxic masculinity hurts women and men the same in different sides of the coin. You know, if a man can't express his feelings, that's going to hurt everyone. And and we need to also realize like, we shouldn't be judging that experience as well. And that we need to allow that to happen and for us to progress, right? Yeah, right. There's a lot, I think about this a lot, where a lot of people like to generalize saying that men don't want to seek help. I think it's not that they don't want to, it's that they can't. Either they don't have the neural pathways built, which is a foundation of all habit building that allows them to seek help. Imagine you never even had any sort of a minor, discomfortable, emotional conversations with another person. How can you ever expect them to take that leap of faith? Because it is a giant leap to offload and iterate and share the deepest, the darkest, most vulnerable secrets with a stranger. Sure, they are a professional licensed therapist or whatever. So I don't think it's that men don't want to. It's that I I really believe that a lot of them, they can't. And in terms of the toxic masculinity, I'm with you 100%. I think in the Western culture, a lot of the, like women are disturbed by the system because it's patriarchal. I think that's the explicit, obvious side. The implicit, less obvious side is that men are confining this false bravado box. We are forced to put up this persona that we're the protector, we're the provider, we're the guardians of X, Y, and Z. And because of this box that society put us in, that's an additional barrier that we have to overcome and move through. But I'm with you 100% that it is a huge disservice to, of course, women, but that's the obvious side. But for men, we are detrimentally impacted negatively by this patriarchal system that we all reside within. 
Yeah, I can imagine. I mean, growing up in a culture that says you have to be tough, boys don't cry, you know, you have to be a man, like all of these tropes that we hear, I can imagine how damaging that can be if your mental health is suffering and you feel like you just have to, quote, tough it out or, you know, quote, be a man. And it's like, what does that even mean? (laughs) Like, these messages are so harmful and are really doing a disservice because it's like, Men can't take care of their own mental health and they might be taking out on women or their families or other people or themselves. And it's like for all of us to have deep healing, we need to get rid of the patriarchy. We need to get rid of toxic masculinity. We have to break the stigma around these messages of what it means to be a woman, what it means to be a man, what it means to be all of these things. And to be able to know that we are all human beings that have feelings, that have mental health struggles. I mean, life is not easy for anyone. And this is why I'm so passionate about mental health, because mental health is like physical health. I mean, we all, you know, have a body, we all experience physical health in some way, even if you're never diagnosed with a quote, mental health issue, like I have been, you still experience sadness, you still experience joy, you still experience, you know, some nerves or butterflies. Like those are all mental health impacts, right? Right. And of course, everyone experienced grief at one point or another. And so it's so important that we all have a vocabulary for what this language is and what these emotions are. And that it is completely normal. Yeah. And it's just simply put once again, neuropathways and habits. How do you get faster at running? You run more. How do you get stronger at weights? You pick up more weights. How do you get better at expressing? Because like the famous mental health adage that the opposite of depression is expression. What you don't express gets depressed. And of course, that's a general blanket statement, but it is the core ethos of a lot of mental health issues is that when you detract and feel isolated, you feel alone. You burden the shoulders of this life and the inheritance suffering that comes with life. As Nietzsche used to say, right? Life is part of suffering or suffering is part of life, that's so much burden to carry by yourself. And another saying, I'm a big quote person, another saying is like, you walk the fastest alone, but if you want to go far, you walk with others. That's how I view the lens and the prism of mental health every single day. I am a big quote person, so I love what you just shared. So thank you so much. I think those are very, very helpful. And, you know, I'm a writer by trade and I love words. And so I, I definitely resonate as a quote person. I think little like quotes and mantras like that can be very helpful in the right settings. And so, yeah, I love what you said about, you know, depression and expression and, you know, really expressing ourselves and, and letting those feelings see the light so that they don't just consume us. And so talking about dark experiences, you know, you've also had three near-death experiences, and I'd love to hear more about that, and what impact did that have on your mental health and your life afterward? Yeah, so a few of those near-death experiences, one from the near deployment, but the second and third one from actually uh, car accidents about two and three years ago, where it completely totaled my car, and it was a very near-death experience where I could have died on both occasions. And just a quick context is basically the first time the car accident that happened, I was on my way to work, I was in a rush, and it was on a highway in Philadelphia where I used to live. And I was in, I was the second car of the five car collisions. And it's a, honestly a miracle that I survived. And of course, it was detrimental, but then in a very meta way, because not all good things are good and not all seemingly bad things are bad. 
a year later, I got into the second car collision that totaled my car once again, the brand new car I got. And interestingly enough that the second time, I was in this extremely calm and almost like bird's eye view out of the body experience where I didn't react. I was very calm. When the EMT and the police got there, they're like, wow, you're suspiciously calm for being in a second uh, total car collision that destroyed my car and almost killed me. And to answer a question, Melanie, that I think it equipped me with this very unique lens. Deployment was a catalyst for this lens because when you recognize that life is finite and you really have this immense gratitude that comes out from surviving such experiences, everything in the way I navigate life is completely switched. Because since that point on, I view even now being 30, uh, those three near-death experiences happened when I was 24 and I think 27 and 28, if I recall correctly, that I view all the years I have now and moving forward as add-ons, as bonuses. That's why I'm not a very big a superficial person. Everything I do is very substances, very intentional and mindful. Because to me, this is a life that was given to me for the third and fourth time after such near-death experiences. And it's profound because I'm so much more intentional with the way I make friends, with the way I navigate whatever aspirations or ambitions I have. In my case, being an aspirational psychedelic therapist and a podcast host. And I think it allowed me to really get not master, but really get better at the art of saying no. Because once again, as I alluded to earlier, I view everything I have now as a bonus by God, by grace, by miracle. So it allows me to be, be such an intentional person. That's why everyone's like, you're only 30. How did you squeeze in three different career pivots, a military and a deployment? And my answer is when you're being intentionally mindful day by day, you'd be surprised about how many things you can accomplish in the way you want to accomplish them, of course. Thank you so much for sharing that experience. And as someone that's also been in two car accidents myself, and I, I feel like I do have some car trauma um, about that as well. Like it is so terrifying to, to be in that experience. Like it really jolts your nervous system quite a bit. And um, I can imagine how those experiences shaped you. But I love that you were able to kind of have these, quote, negative experiences that are frightening and traumatizing but then you allowed yourself to be open to be like this could have ended a lot worse like yes it's not ideal that I totaled my car that I have to get a new one that I have to pay these bills yada yada I've been there as well it's not fun but then when you're like I'm still here and I can walk and I can breathe and I can you know move and I'm still functional like it's such a gift to still have that and have that as a blessing. And so I'm so grateful for you sharing that story and, and feeling renewed and, you know, having another chance at life. Yeah. And I think more concretely that uh, just to tie this into my background as a psychotherapist and mental health, where a lot of people know PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, which is a very, very difficult diagnosis and mental health challenges. At the same time, there's another component that a lot of people overlook is post-traumatic growth. It's the amount of profound insights and growth that happens, which you can apply such insights into your everyday life, whatever domains that you see fit. That growth comes with integrations. And I think that's what mental health is. And I think I attribute a lot of my growth and this new lens that allow me to navigate life in such a hyper-intentional way to the phenomenon of post-traumatic growth. And I think that only comes with intentional setting, only comes with the 
willingness and the initiative to integrate such insights. At the same time, not a lot of people have the privileges or are willing to because it is a very difficult thing to confront your biggest fear, like car trauma, which I also had it for a while until I moved through it recently. But yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I love that you mentioned post-traumatic growth because, I mean, PTSD is a very real thing and it's terrifying and it's difficult to move through. But, you know, there is the other side of the equation, post-traumatic growth. And um, actually, it's interesting. There was a a New York Times article my friend Kristen Wong wrote a few years ago about post-traumatic growth. And in my story about paying off debt was actually kind of the background of like how you have this terrible experience of being in debt and then kind of growing out of that into this new kind of experience. And it was such a, a lovely story. And I was obviously so grateful to be included in that. And, you know, I hadn't necessarily seen it that way. But when she wrote it that way, I was like, yeah, I guess I did grow out of that experience instead of let it hinder me and let it make me bitter and you know, miserable because it can be very easy to, to, to get that way. But, you know, when you let yourself grow from such hard experiences, like that's the real beauty of healing and growth. Yeah, absolutely. And like I said, even the fact that we can talk about this is a uh, reflections of our privileges. Of course, I do want to recognize that where a lot of people don't have the luxury to integrate such insights when they're working for different part-time jobs, speaking of debt and money mindset. They have to worry about providing food to the table. They don't have hours on their end at night to journal, to reflect, to meditate. They're working 18, 19, 20 hours a day, right? But I do agree with you that if you have the privilege and a certain financial baseline to think about such things, I think avoidance in a lot of ways is a root cause of almost all mental health challenges and issues. And obviously avoidance or temporary escapism may serve you. I hate when people are like, oh, you should never escape from your reality. It's all bad. Nothing is all bad or all good. It's all about nuances. Life and the essence of life is the gray. So uh, hopefully with this message, the central message is that if you have the ability and the circumstances to, I would really like to urge people to take a moment because it's all practice, right? Repetition makes perfections or it makes progression. So um, that's that's the message I have in terms of the power of integrations and what may aspire or what may happen once you take that step forward. I love that. And thank you so much for sharing about your privileges. I think that's so important to be transparent because I've always said, like, I'm not ever going to be that personal finance person that's like, I did this so you can too. It's like, I, I don't <laughs> know your situation. I don't know your life. I can't claim to help you in the same way that I helped myself. Like I had certain privileges as well. Like everyone has certain privileges and other people, you know, have different privileges and sometimes circumstances are different. And it's like, I did not have children while I was paying off my debt. I lived in a low cost of area living. You know, I had family that supported me. I was relatively healthy at the time. Like, you know, those are all privileges that we might not even realize at the time, but helped set me up for success. So, you know, I think it's always important that we mention that, A, because I never think when it comes to mental health and money, it's not like, I did this, so you can too. But then also it's like, we all have different frame of references, different circumstances, different things that can help us. And so it's important, like, 
I know sometimes in the social media age, it's always like, I'm comparing myself to so-and-so. Like, they did this, they did that. And it's like, we don't know their life or their circumstances that's helping them in that situation. And so we should never compare ourselves to anybody's growth or trajectory or healing because we all have our own situations. And I think as, as kind of your point is, is like, as long as we can make little changes and be aware, like that can lead to big results given our own, you know, foundation. Yeah. I mean, it's like the, uh, the book Atomic Habits by James Clear. I'm a big habit and mindset person. And he says like, aim for 1% growth every single day. And a year goes by, that's threefold of 365% improvement and aim for progression, not perfection, because perfection does not exist unless your last name is Christ, first name is Jesus. And um, yeah, I just feel like, and also to a point that in addition to what you just said, in addition to our circumstances, I think, how can we ever expect two different people with different genetic makeups, different mutations, different upbringing, different circumstances, different environments to even replicate what we did? That's not realistic at all as a baseline. And obviously, social media does exaggerate that by having this hyper heightened uh, comparison Olympics, as I call it. I love that you mentioned James Clear Atomic Habits. I love that book. And one of the favorite quotes from the book that I always come back to is, I think it says, what is something I can commit to even on my worst day? Mm. And I love that because we all have hard days. We all have difficult days where we might not want to do anything. And it's like, what can I commit to even on my worst days? And so like for me, what I can commit to on my worst day is a walk around the block and like lifting five, you know, reps of weights on each arm. It doesn't sound like a lot, but that's the point of like on my worst day, I can at least get outside and just walk around the block, which is about a 10, 15 minute walk and do that. And that's something for me that's a mental health guardrail because I know for me, like when I start getting towards depression and anxiety, I don't want to do anything. I don't want to move my body. I don't want to leave the house. I want to just like <laughs> lay in bed and not move ever. And so I go back to that quote. It's like, what can I commit to even on my worst day? And it's like, I can at least go around the block for a walk and, you know, do five reps of weights on each arm. And Obviously, I aspire to do more each day, but you know, when I am having those rough days, those hard days, those busy days, it's like I can commit to that. And I think, you know, for everyone, think about that for you. What is something that you can commit to even on your worst day as like a, a very small baseline of what you can that can move your mental health forward at least like 1%. And for me, my mental and physical health are very connected. So for me, moving my body and getting out of the house helps me get away from kind of my mind, right? Yeah, absolutely. I feel like consistency is the most trope cliche, but for any truth to survive the iteration of time, there's a lot of truth there. And I think showing up when it's easy, that's easy. Everyone could do that when you're feeling on top of your game, you're feeling great, you have good things going left and right. It's easy to show up on those days. But as you said exactly, can you show up when you don't feel that way? when you don't feel primed, when you don't feel like the peak of your performance. And I just want to highlight what you said on the, this giant messaging board, that physical health is mental health, that mental health is physical health. Because as you just said, when your emotional well-being and mental health is compromised for whatever reasons, it impacts directly your physical health, period. And I think we really have to debunk and demystify this fallacy 
that physical health and mental health are two separate entities. They are not. They're two sides of the same coin. Yeah, they are absolutely connected. And I encourage all people to listen to the chronic pain and trauma episode, which was very insightful. And also, I just you know wanted to share that what I've learned about neurotransmitters and kind of the happiness chemicals, I believe it is dopamine that gets triggered when you accomplish something. And so, you know, for example, if I don't want to do anything, but I, you know, say, you know what, what's the least I can commit to even on my worst days, I'm going to go for a quick walk, do five reps on left arm, five reps on right arm. I actually feel, you know what, I did that. I didn't really want to do it. It took me 15 minutes total, 20 minutes total, and actually I have that accomplishment chemical now. And so now that I know how kind of some of those neurotransmitters work, it's it's like we're always looking for that dopamine or serotonin hit like in social media or alcohol or booze or sex or drugs or what have you. But we can also get that through accomplishments, through, you know, friendships, through good conversations, through cuddling, you know, through <laughs> less toxic ways that aren't as harmful to the rest of our, our lives, right? Yeah, I'll go even a level deeper and farther than that. I'm neurobiology is my jam. So in terms of dopamine, which is a lot of us view that as a molecule of more, it's simply it's a biological response that triggers saying that I want to do more of what I just did. There's a lot of neuroscience research shows that, of course, there's mixed research, but there's a large component that advocates that there's actually a, the highest peak of spike for dopamine release is actually right before you start that task. So what that means is you don't even have to follow through. So you don't even have to go to the gym. You don't even have to actually have this deep insight for whatever meaningful conversation with your friends. Simply by having this intention and uphold that intention to initiate the half a step or the willingness to actually start that step without necessarily taking that step since everyone has their own limitations, that itself will trigger a large dopamine release. And that's very magical. And through that, you're going to naturally follow through. And I think that's the incremental gains we talked about uh, connecting to atomic habits ethos. Yes. Thanks so much for sharing that. Hey there. Thanks so much for listening to the Mental Health and Wealth Show. I want you to pause real quick and take a mindful minute. Close your eyes and take a deep breath. And exhale. Take a deep breath again. And exhale. Taking a moment for yourself is so important for your mental health. Now, before we get back to the show, I just wanted to say, if you are enjoying this episode, please review the podcast and share it on social media and tag me at Melanie Lockhart and share your thoughts. It'll really help spread the word about the show and help others with their money and mental health. You can also support this independent podcast and buy me a coffee at ko-fi.com forward slash Melanie Lockhart. So, you know, as we've mentioned, you have done quite a lot um, and had many different careers from policymaker to veteran to therapist. I know a lot of people may be interested in a career change. You know, there's a lot of talk about 
job hopping, trying something different. A lot of people might not be happy with their jobs. So I'm curious, what mental health or emotional signs did you get when you knew it was time to move on from a specific career? And how did you know where to move on to next? Yeah, great question. So I want to preface by saying that every single person and all of us have a different threshold for genetic markers such as willpower, disciplines, risk tolerance, distress tolerance. And a lot of that is attributable to genetic markers. And of course, there's also epigenetics, which is a change of DNA expression based on environmental feedback. Um, I share that because, shout out to my parents, I just naturally have a heightened threshold of willpower and disciplines. Uh, of course, I did cultivate it further by having routines, waking up at like 4.40, work out at 5 for the last like seven, eight years. And all those things do add on to that. But I just want to preface that because, as I said, all of us are individual beings and all of us are different. But to answer a question that I think it's this nagging stagnancy feeling when I've been at a certain job or career for so long. And because I've been so intentional since my deployment and my near-death experiences, I almost have this hyper self-awareness that allows me to just tune in and listen to my intuitive whisper, where I have this whisper that starts as soon as I feel like I'm on the misaligned path or I need to pivot. And of course, a lot of that comes with trials and tribulations and the huge competitive advantage that I do have is that within the last six to seven years, I've had three different career pivots, not job pivots, career pivots. And it's not because I couldn't handle it. Like right before I became a clinician, I was the youngest policymaker in my agency's 100-year-old history, the youngest ever. And I chose to pivot during the peak of my career. And the next step would have been a senior program manager, and I would have gone into the policy like politician route, which I chose not to for different reasons. And we can go down that if you want. But I just had this whisper getting louder and louder every single day. And like I said, I'm a very, very self-disciplined person. And the whisper gets so loud to a point, the signals, as you said, the emotional signals got so loud, they start to impede and hinder my discipline, the way I show up. I still try my best because that's who I am. At the same time, I just knew that, oh, it may be time. And as soon as I can recognize that cue, this internal cue that only comes with heightened self-awareness, I start to reflect, meditate, journal, counsel with my circle of trust, the confidence that can really trust to stress test me, to give me the constructive feedback in this radical, honest way without saying yes, man, or yes, woman. And just through that consultations, through self-reflection, journaling, um, it would take me about, I would say, five to six months to finally make a decision. And when I make a decision... I stick to that decision and I embrace it. I don't look back. And that's how I've been able to navigate my life. But I think it just comes down to self-awareness and our ability to really tune in and listen to these intuitive whispers. Because all of us, by nature, are intuitive beings. But some of our intuitions been stifled or buried under these noises, technologies, or whatever. But once you heighten that, I think we would be surprised by what our body and what our mind, the subconscious, aspect tells us day to day. Yeah, I think that is one of the most important things that I have learned on my healing journey over the past couple of years is that your emotions and your body are constantly telling you things. And, you know, oftentimes it's like, we'll feel depressed or anxious and we just find it annoying. And we're like, go away. Like, why am I feeling this way? Or, you know, you have a certain pain and you're like, oh, I'm just going to take some Advil. But if you really 
have the time and space to be able to listen to that and investigate further. And also, you know, don't demonize yourself and say, oh, why am I depressed? Why am I anxious? Why am I in pain? I mean, don't look at those things as judgments against you. Just look at them as this is trying to tell me something. And what is it trying to tell me? And I think, you know, you have that kind of feeling of you get these whispers trying to tell you that it's time to make a change. And I think for me, sometimes I've got those feelings like when I feel stuck, when I feel depressed, like I know I need to make a change, but I'm not quite sure what yet. But I think it's important to have that data, right? To be able to make that change and move forward. Yeah. And it's also a simply about like pattern recognition, even though I do want to nuance that by saying that the past does not necessarily predict the future, but humans like to cling on to this pattern recognition tendency because by seeking the data points from the past in a way to assure them against the future, even though past and future have no relevance and they're just facts. At the same time, I think I would urge people who maybe don't have such disciplines or cultivated practice yet growth mindset because you can always cultivate it just because you don't have it now doesn't mean you won't ever have it. Um, you can sort of like seek out the data points, as you said, and look back. Do you like how you've been feeling? Do you like the way you're showing up at work? Do you enjoy the way you're showing up emotionally, interpersonally, relationally with your partner or spouse, your parents, your friends? Look back and just review the archive of your habits and your behaviors and your relationships. And just simply reviewing the archive for the past three months or six months, generally speaking, if you're being really honest with yourself, and if you have a circle of trust, as I alluded to earlier, I think you'd be like, oh, maybe I don't like where I'm going, or maybe I don't even know where I want to go, but I don't like where I'm at based on the data points derived from the last six to uh, three to six months. And then based on that, just hold that thought and just own it and embrace that. Then I think that's when capacity or the prospect of change may emerge over time. And I think that's so powerful when you have that moment. Yeah, and I also just want to hold space for this idea that change is very painful, mm. incredibly painful. And what I mean by that is, you know, I'm listening to you and it's like, we have this idea where, you know, we might be getting these messages that I need to change. Like, I need to leave this relationship. I need to leave this job. I need to move. I need to cut off this friend or like whatever might be the painful emotion. And you might not be ready to make that choice quite yet. And it can be a long lingering process of being in pain and knowing you have to make a certain choice, but then knowing that you're going to have to grieve the life that you used to have or grief the future that might not be anymore because of a certain choice. It's like, I always like to think about life as a choose your own adventure. And it's like, all of our choices that we make put us on a different path. Like if I made this choice, it'll be on this path. If I made this choice, it'll be on this path. And whenever we end up making any choice, we necessarily have to grieve that other choice or what we left behind. And I think that can be so incredibly painful. And I think so many people are fearful of that pain that they don't even want to make the change, but then they, they don't realize that staying stuck is also another form of pain, right? Yeah. Amen. Sister Dia, you're a poet with your words. So, um, yeah, as you said, capacity or the willingness to change is hard. doesn't matter what stages of life you're in, um, which is the reason why when you don't have this internal ability yet, you can always rely on external support system. 
And as I usually say on my show, that healing takes a village. And there is a reason why Homo sapiens became the dominant apex predators because like Neanderthals and there's other Homo species that were stronger and bigger than we were. But if you look at the uh, history, I think Homo sapiens had the largest gatherings. Neanderthals were about 50 to 60. Like fossil records indicate that there are about 50 to 60 gathering per villages. But Homo sapiens were the first kind and species that had more than 100. And that shows you that it's primal and primitive. It's truly prehistoric that all of us are not meant to walk this path of life alone. Absolutely. I totally agree. And kind of going back to, you know, talking about your careers a little bit and, you know, because this is the mental health and wealth show, I do like to talk about money as well. So I'm curious, how has your money mindset changed over time with your various career shifts, if, if at all? Yeah, so I am aware and I am also curious how you came up with this idea of combining mental health and wealth, which is a fascinating process you took. Uh, to be fair, I went through, I was born with a certain level of financial comfortability. Like I wasn't rich or anything, but I never had to worry about food on the table, etc. And I think because of the way my parents or my single mother raised me, I did go through like this lavish lifestyle stage in college. I was part of the Greek life. I was very egotistical at the time. But I think just through my near-death experience in the beginning, it's sort of, it's like a mental reset. It resets my life. And I view it as I get to embark and start and begin a new chapter in the way I want to write the story this time versus the way I've been brought up or raised. So I'm not, I don't have a lot of like um, interest or hobbies. I don't care about cars. I don't care about clothes. I just care about travel and food and my passion of podcasting and my clinical work. So to answer your question though, I think my money mindset has always been very healthy. Um, not because of my rigorous personality, not because I'm a financial guru with financial like personal management per se, but because I view money as just like a tool. You know, it's not evil or good. A lot of people like to uh, demonize money, the capitals, living in this capitalistic society. And there's some valid truth to that because the people that we put on a pedestal tend to have the largest influence because of their capital or because of their wealth. I simply view it as what's your intention? What's the value you're trying to achieve through money? Because often money does not necessarily buy happiness. At the same time, money can contribute to a certain level of happiness depending on circumstances. So my money mindset didn't necessarily shift too much based on my career pivots, but more so it shifted more based on my near-death experiences and this reset I went through emotionally um, at the same time, by choosing policymaking routes and clinical routes, obviously it's not the most lucrative, like investment banking or uh, management consulting, etc. So I think I just uh, learned to live slightly uh, below my means uh, because I don't really feel this need to show off or showcase or feel the need to compete with others because I have a lot of very affluent and uh, business you know, savvy and successful friends, but it doesn't really impact me. I think a lot of that is my personality trait, to be honest. That's great. And yeah, I think it's so wonderful to have an example of what a healthy money mindset looks like where you are not necessarily triggered by other people's success, nor do you feel like you have to keep up with other people or, you know, you don't have these extremely painful experiences. Like, I mean, I got into mental health and money because I was so deeply in student loan debt that it made me depressed and anxious and it affected my self-worth. And then, you know, I was blogging about it with my blog, Dear Debt. And 
it just unearthed so many other people who had messaged me saying, I'm depressed about my debt. I'm depressed about my money. And I just realized that for a lot of people, there's this connection that, you know, a lack of financial resources will lead to depression and anxiety, which, which makes sense. I mean, it's part of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. If you're stressed about your survival, if you're stressed about having a roof over your head or food or being able to pay your bills, I mean, that can be a threat to your safety. And then also a lot of people, you know, might have money trauma, whether it's a debt that came from a terrible relationship or, you know, even if it's innocuous, like student loan debt, but you feel like you can't pay it back or you feel like, for me, I felt like I was trapped with this debt and I didn't know how to make better choices. And like, luckily I was able to get out of it, but, you know, money can be a powerful mirror to other issues that we have. And so I think it's like an endlessly fascinating topic and kudos to you to, you know, having this lifestyle of living below your means and also like not letting other people kind of affect your lifestyle. Because I think, especially in our culture, it's so easy to see people with these nice things and think that like, oh, I might be less than because I don't have that. Or maybe I don't have enough. Or, you know, people go to careers that like, make them a lot of money, but don't fulfill them at all, maybe as a response to money trauma, or maybe because they just really deeply want to feel that safety or that popularity or what have you. Whereas, you know, a lot of people that might go into careers that don't pay as well, but they're more personally fulfilled. So I think there's so much room for nuance here. And I just wanted to ask because Um, I think it's so fascinating and I love that you feel like you have such a healthy money mindset. I think that is great because so many people struggle with money, but if you feel like you don't, like that's amazing. I think we need more of those stories as well. (laughs) Yeah. The, uh, I'm currently reading this book called psychology of money and it kind of talks about this story that, uh, this billionaire hosted this party on this Island and, the host was a hedge fund manager making, I think, about $350 million a year. I think to be eligible as a top 10 hedge fund managers in the world, you have to make about $340 million a year. That's like the cutoff line, if I recall correctly. And the author of the Catch-22 was at the party. And the friend was telling the author that, hey, how do you feel about this host making more money in one night than you ever did? And Catch-22 is a wildly successful uh, novel. And she said this. I have something that he will never have, and that's enough, period. And I think that's the mindset I operate by is that when is it enough? And I can do everything I want to achieve. I, I, get, I, get, I travel two, three times a year. I just got back from Europe. I'm very frugal and without necessarily compromising the lifestyle I want to live. And I think because of this mindset that I was able to not accept the sponsorship offer until like my third year with the podcast, and I have this very self-guarding mechanism that protects me from all these desires to monetize or to compromise my creativity. And I think that's the reason why I was able to get featured on Apple Podcasts twice this year because my creativity is untainted and it's not diluted because of my money mindset of when is it enough? And I know my threshold and I know my point of enough. And a lot of people don't because of social media and et cetera. Yes, I I enjoyed reading Psychology of Money as well. And yeah, I think that point is so important. Like I have what he'll never have and that is enough. And I I also listened to Ramit Saiti's I Will Teach You to Be Rich podcast. Mm. And it's so fascinating to me because he has people on the show with millions and millions of dollars 
who still feel like they don't have enough or they're scared to, you know, go on vacation. They're scared to buy organic blueberries. And it's like, you know, I think for a lot of us, we hear that and think that is so wild because most of us are just trying to even have a chance at retirement or have a chance at a million dollars or, you know, have a chance of some freedom. But I feel like if you have that healthy mindset of like, what is enough? And I think this is very particular. What is enough for me? Because obviously we all live in different cities, have different circumstances, different obligations, but what is enough for me? And I think like what is so important is like knowing that you have enough now. Like if you have food in your fridge, you have a roof over your head, you're relatively healthy, like you can take care of yourself, like That is so important because so many people get stuck in this chasing of wealth and money just at the, you know, expense of everything else, but they're not really fulfilled and it's never enough. And they wonder why they never feel happy or satisfied. And so I think it's so important to realize that that can be just as much of a trap, you know, and, and to be aware of that. Yeah. If you, uh, metaphorically speaking, if you're chasing any dragons, whatever that dragons may look like or represent or symbolize by you taking on the journey to chase that dragon means that you will never chase a dragon, period. And I think we need to burn down all the boxes. Like if you attach your self-worth towards money and wealth or your job, if you attach your self-worth and identity to being a therapist, a podcast host, um, I recognize that those are simply the avenues of my creativity and my passion and purpose. But I don't attach myself to that because when that box burns down, you burn down. And I think that's a very, very intricate and difficult thing to do. And that's how I view money and wealth and jobs and mental health is I think we need to burn down all the boxes. And of course, it's not easy by any means, but at least by initiating and at least by being intentional and mindful as we started this episode, I think we can get a little bit farther each time. And there's hope for sure. Yes, that is so wise. Thank you so much for sharing. Um, I want to transition a little bit to talking about psychedelics you are interested in psychedelic-assisted therapy, and I recently watched the Netflix show How to Change Your Mind, which I was so fascinated with and saw that there were vast mental health improvements with the treatment regarding depression, trauma, OCD. I read a few articles a few years ago that I believe that said ketamine was helpful in treatment-resistant depression, and from what I understand, These are people who might have been on many different antidepressants and they didn't work. And as someone who's been on medication myself, like, and it has worked for me, sadly, there are, you know, people in the population where those medications might not work. And so I think this is a really novel, interesting therapy, but the term psychedelics, I think has a lot of baggage. People think like, oh, you're just going to get high and like hallucinate. Like, what is that about? So I'd love to know from, you know, you, how does this type of therapy work? What are some stigmas that we can break and, and, and give people some clarity around this? I mean, how much time do we have? Because uh, this, <laughs> this is my bread and butter. Do, um, say whatever you want to say. Keep going. <laughs> yeah. So in terms of psychedelic research, I have my pulse on every single research out there. I've done a lot of research with John Hopkins Maps, which is the source behind how to change your mind. And of course, that appeases to a larger audience since not everyone I read 20, 30 page dense peer reviewed articles, but I do. I'm definitely a nerd in that sense. So the, I tell people to begin this conversation that I'm not in a business of convincing because evidence has been established and it's robust. It's extremely robust evidence. And these are the molecules and substances been around for eons. 
like thousands of years by indigenous culture, South American, um, and on and on and on. And of course, in the 60s, Nixon Adamant sort of declared the war on drugs and it's been forbidden since. But it was never a forbidden fruit. It was an open access for all mankind to access. And of course, there is like stone ape theory that attributes to the exponential growth of brain development to psychedelic compounds. It sounds cool. And obviously, uh, Timothy Leary, he, he will talk a lot about that or Terrence McKenna. Um, but that aside, so if you look at the most recent article that was published on Nature, which is the most prestigious and credible peer-reviewed scientific article in the world. And MAPS at John Hopkins Psychedelic Research Center, they published, they ended their second clinical trial, and I think they're towards the tail end of the third clinical trial, which was the first FDA-approved trial period, which is insane that a government drug agency like the FDA has approved such studies. If you look at the efficacy or the effectiveness of psychedelic, for example, like psilocybin MDMA, those are the substances I'm most familiar with. Treating PTSD, and it's not just PTSD, complex PTSD with comorbidities and multiple symptomology and all that, in addition to a treatment-resistant depression, uh, they did a a long-term follow-up study with two years and four years, and all the participants been on SSRI, antidepressants, and they've thought psychotherapy for 10 years. That's the entry point to be eligible to be part of this study. What that means is all of these people have insights, all of these have thought therapy and help, and all of them have been medicated in addition to that. Yet none of them were able to address what they were going through, the suffering, the pain, until psilocybin and MDMA. After the trial, 86% of the participants no longer exhibit any symptoms that that, uh, qualify them even for the diagnosis. Let me say that again, 86% of these participants who've been battling depressions and PTSD and everything in between for 10 plus years after therapy and medications were now no longer even eligible for such diagnosis within two to four controlled sessions. It's eradications of the disease. It's not even addressed or remedying, it's eradications. And the long-term studies and reports shows that the efficacy is sustained by nearly all participants, like the 86%. That is insane to me. And of course, there's a lot of the unknown. A lot of people call right now the psychedelic renaissance, and they call psychedelics the miracle molecule. In some way, yes, because it is the efficacy is so wild compared to SSRI. And in terms of like SSRI, uh, to provide a reference point, that running, I think about 30 minutes to an hour or like a rigorous exercise of 30 minutes to an hour a day releases a similar amount of serotonin that SSRI does. So SSRI is effective, and a lot of people can benefit from SSRI or antidepressants, but it is a pretty scant uh, medicine in terms of how long it's been around, the big pharma that's behind such medications, and how so many more populations and people are still suffering even after they've been medicated. But psilocybin, MDMA, and other psychedelics have the ability to not only just show improved efficacy, but complete eradications of the disease itself, that is mind-blowing to me. And I just want to add some correction to your point earlier that uh, actually the research shows that ketamine shows the least efficacy because it does work, but the sustained efficacy only lasts about two weeks. And after the two weeks, the efficacy by ketamine uh, subsides and they sort of they resume back to the baseline. Um, but of oh, course, there's a lot of, yeah, but of course, there's a lot of politics and 
intricacies behind that allowed ketamine to be over applied and become this holy grail for cat- uh, for psychedelic, which is great because it's like the entry point and a good baseline to start. But in terms of the overall efficacy of psychedelic medicine, ketamine is on the lower part of the uh, totem pole, so to speak. Oh, God, thank you so much for clarifying that. Yeah, I was just sharing kind of, you know, what I read in the article, but I know you've done far more research than I have. And, you know, I got uh, familiar with all these other substances through the How to Change Your Mind series on Netflix. And yeah, I was so intrigued by it myself because I saw one of the guys said he cured his OCD, which Hmm. I have moderate OCD and I was interested in that. And then I've had depression and I've been on medication in the past. And so it's something I would potentially be interested if I had a very dark episode in the future. And I'm curious, so what does it look like to have a psychedelic assisted therapy? Because we're not talking about just like giving people quote, these drugs and like being like, here you go. Bye. Like, what does it look like to work with a therapist in that regard? Right. Uh, I'm happy to send you my study pilot after the episode. You can take a read at it. It's the one that I designed. Uh, but yeah, to answer your question. So as you said, there's a lot of stigma and a lot of people are like, oh, I, I had to take this trippy substance and I get to trip and hallucinate and see all these colorways. That is a component of the medicine of this journey. But how that works is you first come up with a baseline of dosage. So what we call that clinically controlled doses, and that could be 5 milligrams, 10 milligrams, or 25 milligrams based on your tolerance, your comfortability, and all those factors. And of course, there are risk factors. A quick add note that if you have heart disease or heart problems, or if you have mental illness history, mental illness is not mental health. They're very different. If you have mental illness history in your family, psychedelics is a big no-no because it is known to trigger a psychosis. And once the psychosis has been triggered, it actually creates this mental illness or a rupture of mental illness, which is irreversible, which means you have it for permanently for life. Um, so there are risk factors. It's not for everyone. But if you have gone through the vetting process with physicians, medical teams, all the evaluations, then you select the controlled dosage amount that you're comfortable with. And you do the four to eight sessions. Um, all these control studies have different variations for obvious reasons. But through that, for psilocybin, it lasts about four to six hours. For MDMA, it lasts about six to eight hours. So a therapist or a shaman or healer that's been certified and trained professionally, not just these holistic life coach gurus on Instagram, even though a lot of them are valid, but a lot of them are phonies. Once you have a proper vetted guidance or healer or therapist, they guide you through. Because what happens with psychedelics is it's almost like imagine strapping a GPS or a navigation system on a rocket ship. You know it's going somewhere, but you have no idea where it's going to go. And the pace of acceleration is so rapid and unimaginable that you need someone to ground you in real time. And you're going to experience all these flashes of insight and trains of thoughts. Like you're going to have so many trains of thoughts because your brain is hyperactivated through the compounds. You're going to have things that are coming from your shadow self, like as Jung said, right, the shadow self, or you might be coming from your subconscious or your trauma points and all these things. And if not facilitated well, people may have this air quote bad trip, even though I don't really believe in bad trip because through integrations, those bad trips, air quote, may still provide a lot of tremendous and profound impact and insights. Uh, but that's like the typical settings uh, where you have a physician on site for medical and safety reasons, but through whatever agreed upon sessions, a healer and a therapist just guide you through of the un- uncovered and discovered insight in sessions and people integrate that. 
But the medicine itself is just part of the work, but it's not the work. The work comes from integrations. Likewise, a lot of people view psychotherapy as doing the work, like, but there's 168 hours in a week. Some of us shower for more than an hour a week, like uh, if you accumulate all the time together. So how can you expect one hour seeing a professional therapist out of 168 hours to magically upgrade your life? That's not realistic. So integration has to happen. And that's the same key component for a psychedelic therapy as well. Thank you so much for sharing that. It's so fascinating. And yeah, I'm so interested in this research because it sounds like there's a lot of hope for certain communities that, you know, might have not been treated or not have received help. I appreciate you, you know, sharing those disclaimers that it's absolutely not for everyone because who wants to trigger psychosis? I don't, um, you know, so I think it's, it's very important for people to be aware, you know, of the risks, but I also wanted to bring that to this show because it's not something that we have talked about on this show. And it's something that I've recently just been curious about as someone that has struggled with mental health and someone that is curious about the power of medicine and research and, it sounds like if it can help get to some of those core issues with the assistance of, you know, a trained licensed therapist who can help, like it could be an interesting option. It's definitely something for people to look into and, you know, just to understand like where the science is at, because yeah, I think it's still kind of on the margins of, of mental health. So thank you so much for bringing that to our attention. And I wanted to end the show and talk about the power of healing. So how can healing transform your life and get people to optimal performance? Yeah, that's the biggest ethos and missions theme and I carry on on this show and outside of the show, where I really believe that optimal peak performance or sustained optimal peak performance, which that's the definition of optimal to begin with, is emotional capacity, emotional functioning, period. Because if you're not emotionally feeling well, with the example of relational stress, at least for me as a people of color, as a Korean American, when I'm stressed about my sister or my parents or these family drama that's inherited to a lot of the minority or people of color cultures, I can't focus on work. Doesn't matter how much systems I have in place, doesn't matter how much toolkits, how much mindset, how much habit hacks I have, I just can't focus on what I do. And because I can't focus on what I do, I can't be optimal. I can't show up to work professionally, interpersonally the way I want to. And that's what optimal is, right? So I really believe that emotional well-being and emotional functioning and our ability to heighten and cultivate our emotional capacity is the root contributing factor to this sustainable optimal peak performance. Because when you have minimum incongruence in your life, whether that's spiritual incongruence, emotional incongruence, or whatever, when you're doing work, when you're typing away, doing cell sheets or whatever avenues of job you're doing, there's less distractions. That's how that works, plain and simple. But by not addressing our incongruences within our life internally, it's going to get externalized and spill over the way we started this interview. So to answer your question succinctly, that I believe that optimal performance requires healing, which requires us to attend to our mental health and emotional well-being day to day. Yes, I totally agree and think that is so important and something to be aware of because, yeah, it's all integrated and yeah I feel you whenever there's a big issue it's 
it's really hard to focus and to work. And I think we've all been feeling that with the pandemic and the war. I mean, I just read a headline that said productivity is lowest it's been in, you know, many years. And it's like, hmm, there's, I think there's a lot of uh, reasons for that right now because we're living in extremely stressful, chaotic times. But thank you so much for all of this wonderful conversation and advice and sharing your personal stories. It's been such a wonderful conversation. Where can people find you? Yeah, I appreciate you for having me and I appreciate how insightful and thoughtful your questions are. So everyone can find me on YouTube at Discover More Podcast. We just broke a 1K of subscribers within a five-month period, which I'm really proud of for all the work. Uh, you can find my show, Discover More, on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you seek out your doses of podcasts week by week. And you can find this on Instagram at Discover More Podcast as well. And I'm just grateful for these conversations. And as a fellow student of life, I think that by choosing and leaning into your curiosity day by day, week by week, we get to expand our reality and what there is just to discover. And I think I find that very fascinating, which is why it's called to Discover More. Love that. Thank you so much. And I appreciate your time. Yeah. Thank you so much, Milani. And um, yeah, thanks for having me again. Thank you so much for listening to the Mental Health and Wealth Show. Want more content and support? Sign up for the Mental Hump newsletter and get our free mental health and money inventory worksheet. You can sign up at mentalhealthandwealth.com and also check out our other blog posts and podcast episodes. Also, we host a mental health and wealth hangout every other Thursday over Zoom at 5 p.m. Pacific to chat about all things money and mental health. If you'd like to support the podcast, it would mean so much to me if you left a review. And you can also support me at ko-fi.com forward slash Melanie Lockhart. And lastly, I want to remind you to do something for yourself to take care of your mental health and wealth.